Hello, everyone. I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and we're delighted that you have responded to our message about this call-in program on reflections on the 2018 Taiwan midterm elections. We've subtitled that Results and Forecasts for 2020, because there are a lot of things to talk about in this most recent election, and we have two terrific people who have agreed to be both the moderator and the speaker. Uh, the speaker is Jacques Delisle, who is coming to you direct from Taiwan, so he'll be able to give you a real sense of the mood of what's going on there. And our moderator is Maggie Lewis. You have their bios in front of you, um, so we won't take a lot of time on that, but I should add that Maggie recently came back from spending a year with her family in Taiwan where she was on a Fulbright grant. So let me turn it over to Maggie at this point who will open up with some comments and then turn it over to Jacques and then we'll get to all of you for Q&A. Thanks so much, both you and Jacques. Thanks, Jan. It's, it's great to be here in um, Newark, which is, is, is very cold. I'm realizing I'm no longer in Taipei and delighted that Jacques is on the line uh, from Taiwan. Uh, Jacques Delisle is the, a professor of law as well as a professor of political science and wears other hats at the University of Pennsylvania. He has been on the ground in Taiwan, I think, now for a couple days and has been drinking from the fire hose of knowledge, trying to uh, understand uh, the significance of last Saturday's elections, what people are saying on the ground, and um, and also thinking what this means going forward. It's it's a long time till 2020, but uh, certainly speculation is already beginning of what this means for the DPP and KMT's future. How we're going to run the next uh, almost hour is give Jacques about uh, 12 minutes or so, give or take, to give his thoughts, uh, and then I'll jump in. And then we'll pass it along to the broader audience uh, for their questions and have a conversation. So with that, uh, Jacques, uh, what's, what's happening over there? Well, thanks, Maggie. Thanks, Jan. It's uh, great to be here. Well, everybody's still sort of sussing out the consequences of the election. I, I thought I would use my 10 to 12 minutes or so to just give a quick overview of what happened and what the sense is of why, and then maybe lead in a little bit to discussing what it all means. Uh, so it's almost a week since the elections. It was last Saturday. And these are the so-called nine-in-one elections, uh, or what are often referred to loosely as the midterms here. Uh, Taiwanese voters elected 22 mayors, including uh, 22 mayors and county magistrates, and includes six uh, special large municipalities and 16 other cities and count counties. They also elected 900 <coughs> city councilors and nearly 10,000 other officials, so a big election. Um, but what made it different from other midterms is there were also 10 referenda on the ballot uh, on a range of issues, most of them having to do with LGBT rights, uh, with environmental issues, uh, and a couple of other matters. Uh, so there was a lot on the ballot. Uh, the turnout was pretty normal for a midterm, was about 60%, um, which is typically what you see here, uh, maybe a little bit lower than last time. And the story is the Guomindang, the uh, former ruling party and not the current ruling party, won big, and the uh, Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, the current party of the president and the legislative majority, uh, lost pretty big. Um, so I guess the immediate question is, why would anyone care, since these are just local elections? And I think there are a bunch of reasons for that, which are probably obvious to our listeners, our audience. 
This was, of course, yet another successful democratic election in Taiwan. We're now two, two and a half decades into the democratic transition here, and it's pretty impressive. It's clean voting, clean counting, uh, even very close races, and there's one very close race still somewhat in dispute here in Taipei for the mayorship. Uh, the, the, the results are generally pretty widely accepted, and, of course, that kind of democracy is unique in the Chinese world. And as the introduction noted, these midterm elections uh, are seen often as a harbinger of what will happen in the next presidential and legislative elections, which are due in only 14 months, or actually more than halfway through a four-year term. And it was four years ago when the Guomindang, which was then in control of the presidency and the legislature, got thumped in the midterms in 2014 in the fallout of the Sunflower Movement and the protests against the cross-strait trade agreement for services. And that was uh, the thing that uh, got everyone to thinking that the DPP might do very well in 2016, as it did indeed winning the presidency and for the first time ever a legislative majority. So the question is, does this midterm defeat for the DPP herald bad news for 2020? And I'm sure we'll circle back to that. Uh, but first, a little bit of detail on, on what happened here. Again, it was a, a big uh, Guomindang win and a big DPP loss. The DPP went from 13 down to 6 of the 22 seats, and it lost uh, the biggies. It lost uh, Kaohsiung, which is the second largest city in Taiwan where uh, the DPP had controlled the mayorship for 20 years. Uh, it lost Taipei. Well, that's a little hard to, uh, to characterize because what happened there was Kulinja, the independent candidate, who was once pretty closely aligned with the DPP, won re-election. But in his re-election bid, he had distanced himself from uh, the DPP, and, and much of the DPP had sort of turned against him for remarks that were seen as too pro-mainland by uh, remarking that in Shanghai that people on both sides of the straits were part of a single family. And this time, unlike four years ago, the DPP ran a candidate in Taipei, who finished with a dismal under 18%. So in that sense, same person re-elected, but bad news uh, for the DPP. The DPP also lost Taichung, which is the big swing city, and it uh, had a close call in Tainan, which is about as reliably DPP a big city as you can get. Uh, so a pretty, pretty bad uh, set of results for them across the board there. Uh, in the uh, 900 councillor elections, uh, the Guomindang gained about 20 of the 900 seats, uh, and the DPP lost 70, and what that, of course, means is that a significant, if small, uh, share of seats went to other parties, including the NPP, the New Power Party, which came out of the Sunflower Movement, uh, which is kind of on the left, and the New Party, the most pro-reunification party on the far right. Uh, the vote share, uh, the DPP actually did worse in 2018 than the KMT had done in uh, its blowout loss in 2014, uh, and they took it pretty hard. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, the president of Taiwan, uh, president of the Republic of China, stepped down as chairman of her party, the DPP. The premier, uh, Lai Ching-de, offered his resignation, as did the head of the presidential office, Chen Zhu. Uh, those resignations were all ultimately rejected, uh, but uh, it is seen as potentially uh, foretelling really bad news a couple of years from now. In some ways, the referenda results were uh, a bit more uh, interesting to chew over. Uh, there were, as I said, 10 referenda. Seven of them were basically associated with the KMT or had KMT support. Uh, three were associated with the DPP or had DPP support. All seven of the KMT ones won, in effect, and the three DPP ones lost. There were five on LGBT issues, uh, basically pro and anti-marriage equality, um, and then a civil union alternative the two anti-marriage equality and uh, education about uh, um, sex orientation and, and, and other related issues. The, the two sort of uh, pro-LGBT ones uh, lost. The anti, 
uh, ones, the sort of mirror image ones, one, and the civil union, uh, in effect, the alternative to marriage uh, passed as well, and they all passed pretty handily. There's a backstory there, which we may get into on Q&A, uh, that the Grand Justices, Taiwan's constitutional court in 2017, had struck down as unconstitutional the requirement on the books in the civil code that marriage is between one man and one woman only, and the uh, Grand Justices gave the legislature two years to fix it, and we're now closing it on two years, and nothing has been done. There were three other referenda on energy issues. Basically, the DPP had taken an anti-nuclear power stance uh, and had planned to rely on coal to bridge the gap. This created pollution issues, uh, and it also uh, created concerns about energy shortages, which are a big deal for Taiwan's uh, high-tech energy-intensive industries. There was another referendum on whether to continue a ban on products from Fukushima, the, uh, the uh, nuclear fallout zone in Japan from the, uh, from the reactor disaster a few years ago. Um, which was essentially a food safety question, also criticizing the DPP's handling of that issue. And there was yet another uh, status-related referendum, the sort of thing we've seen in the past. In this case, the question of whether Taiwan should compete in the Olympics or try to compete in the Olympics under the name Taiwan rather than the strange nomenclature of Chinese Taipei, which it has had to uh, live under for quite some time. And there are a lot of interesting legal questions and constitutional questions as well as political process questions about what these referenda all mean. It's really uncharted waters because no referendum had ever passed before in Taiwan. There were that many on the referendum uh, ballot this year because of a change in the rules that made it much easier uh, to put referenda before the electorate. So in my last couple of minutes, why this result? Well, the general consensus is that this was more of a DPP loss than it was a KMT win. Uh, there's a lot of evidence pointing to that. It's certainly the conventional wisdom here on both sides of the aisle. Opinion polls uh, had a very, very low rating for Tsai. Her job performance rating was down to the 20s. Um, and there was also polling on whether people would be willing to vote for her again. About 20% said yes, about 50% plus said no. Uh, much of it seems to have been about uh, domestic political and policy issues. And here it's essentially an inventory of those aspects of Tsai's electoral platform from 2016 that her government had pursued through legislation and policy change. And basically, the pattern is some progressive policies which had substantial opposition on the merits, and then a sense even among supporters of those policies that the government had not pursued them well or effectively. So just to run through a few of them, one is pension reform. Uh, Taiwan has a big pension liability for civil servants, retired military people, retired teachers, and so on. It's generally agreed that some sort of restructuring is needed because of the debt burden it's creating. Uh, but here there was a couple of false starts on how to pursue the policy. It was generally seen uh, as having quite deep cuts, two deep cuts uh, in the view of many. And there's a partisan issue overlaying on this in that many of these government retirees and military retirees lean KMT, so it had this sort of partisan flavor as well, even though reform had been acknowledged as something that needed to be done during the prior uh, KMT administration of Mainjiu. Then there were labor issues as well. There were reforms to the Labor Standards Act to require alternate Saturdays off, but that was not terribly well handled either in a way that wound up leaving both small-scale employers and the employees who were supposed to benefit from this uh, rather unhappy about uh, the outcome. Uh, a lot of it was about LGBT issues, the same thing that uh, drove uh, several of the referenda. And uh, here, uh, the referenda in particular helped mobilize relatively conservative voters, sort of pro-KMT types, as well as many religious groups. 
that were against uh, marriage equality and against changing the definition of marriage to include same-sex marriage. Uh, but, it, but the way it was handled, the uh, introduction of legislation by the government that never really made it through the legislature uh, led to disappointment uh, among relatively liberal supporters uh, of the DPP, including many of the young people who had been much of the surge in DPP voting in 2014 and 2016. They were disappointed with the Tsai administration backing away from that agenda. Part of the explanation that's making the rounds here is that uh, the Tsai administration looked around and realized that although the DPP had benefited from the youth vote, it also still had its old sort of down-island conservative farmer groups uh, that were not too keen on uh, gay rights. There was also a transitional justice uh, issue, uh, which Tsai uh, campaigned in part uh, on a pledge to deal with uh, the reconciliation questions, the judgment questions having to do with the Guomindang's authoritarian uh, era in power and sort of what to do with assets and what to do with accountability. This is obviously a very touchy issue in any system, and it's been touchy and divisive here, and it got a little more so, a little more controversial, and one of the members of the commission that's handling this under Tsai uh, was um, exposed for having said some fairly partisan, perhaps um, uh, sort of abusive of the process um, things that the, the process might be used against KMT candidates. And more broadly, there's a sense of economic dissatisfaction. Uh, Tsai ran partly on a platform of reinvigorating a growth rate that is, by Taiwanese standards, kind of sluggish and over concerns about whether what growth there was was being broadly shared. This is one of the um, factors that drove the youth movement, the sunflower movement, which occupied the legislature uh, back in the run-up to, uh, to the prior election. Uh, it was partly about concerns about mainland influence, but it was also partly a concern about uh, economic opportunity, and there, there was disappointment with the failure to deliver on that. The um, uh, other issues that seem to have had a, uh, a role in this electoral outcome, uh, one is, of course, the referenda, which were both a mobilizing force but also, also a source of complaints and confusion. Uh, there was a lot of discontent about the unclear wording of some of the referenda and about the fact that people sometimes had to wait quite uh, lengthy periods, you know, an hour or two, which is a long time here, online to vote because it was taking more time to vote for both candidates and the referenda. Uh, but there's also a little other uh, bit of other stuff going on in the background, at least. Uh, one issue is what could be called a um, temper tantrum politics, as it were. People get very dissatisfied with their government very quickly here. Uh, Ma Ying-jeou had the same experience when he won the presidency uh, for the first time eight years ago, and then the honeymoon period seems to be getting shorter. And there are some signs of a general dissatisfaction with politics as usual. Two of the most notable candidates uh, who won this time out, Kalinja, who won re-election as mayor of Taipei as an independent, and Han Guoyi, who won uh, the, what was thought to have been an unwinnable seat for the KMT in Kaohsiung, are both anti-politician politicians. Even though uh, Han had spent uh, several years in the legislature, uh, he really he had been out for well over a decade, and they both ran as plain-spoken anti-politician politicians complaining about the way politics as usual was run. Uh, Han even ran on a platform called Make Kaohsiung Great Again, uh, and then much of their appeal, in Han's case particularly viral appeal, was this, this sort of uh, attack on the, the establishment and normal politicians. Finally, last thing I'll say is, as with all things in Taiwan, there's a significant shadow of China here. There are allegations of election interference, uh, particularly uh, in the role that China may have played or Chinese uh, netizens uh, perhaps working with the government may have played to drive up 
uh, the uh, social media visibility of Hangul Yu, who became the, 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 one, the uh, candidate who won the election in Kaohsiung, uh, drove up his, his uh, uh, number of hits and made his, got his viral campaign started. By the end, he was somebody who, having started with almost no support from the KMT establishment, wound up going around the country, making appearances on behalf of other candidates, showing up in, uh, in stadia full of supporters and so on. Uh, so this question about Chinese uh, interference that may have supported that. There are also allegations of Chinese money finding its way to some candidates that were relatively pro-China and so on. So we're going to see the fallout of that for some period. Uh, and uh, there finally is the question of whether the vote against Tsai and the DPP was in part a referendum on the current case state of cross-strait relations, which of course have deteriorated since Tsai came into office and Beijing judged her not to have uh, been sufficiently uh, accepting of one, the One China Principle in the 92 consensus. Uh, that's been uh, the mainland's read on it. I think that read is generally not shared uh, around here, but we can talk more about that when we get into Q&A. So I should stop at this point because I've already gone over my allotted time. Great. Thanks, Jacques. That's a lot to unpack. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with something you said near the end with the dissatisfaction with politics as usual. Because uh, when I was in Taiwan, I was struck by how the KMT did not seem to have a compelling, clear message for voters. It was more that you aren't happy with the DPP, so try us again. And, uh, and so trying to get a sense of how much this election was uh, a re-embracing of the KMT or, or just more of a rejection of the DPP. And certainly with Han Guayu and, and Ke, that there's, this isn't your father's KMT either, that there's a, a, a difference in, in the sort of the old school green and blue. So to what extent, I'm, I'm wondering, our, our old paradigm of the DPP and KMT, is that no longer as helpful as it used to be to think about politics in Taiwan, not just because of new power party, new party, the rise of relatively small, but some other parties that are at least gaining a, a little bit of a, a toehold. But um, even within the DPP, where Tsai is, is struggling to deal with the, the deeper green part of her party, and that complicates her job, I think maybe not as much as the KMT, but it, it does complicate her job. So how do we kind of break down politics in Taiwan now as we go forward and thinking about traditional parties and what that means today? Yeah, I think uh, uh, with the partial exception, and it may prove to be a very big exception of Kulinja and Taipei, uh, the, it's still a pretty robustly uh, two-party system. I mean, there was a time uh, before we saw the reform of the legislature uh, that you know, sort of going to single-member districts and a fairly high threshold for proportional representation. Uh, and when we had some of the old dinosaurs around, when uh, Li Donghui, the former president who left the KMT to found Taiwan Solidarity Union, and when uh, James Sung, who left the KMT uh, to found the People's First Party, you, you, there, there it looked like we might be having some structure that would be conducive to secondary parties. But with the, the change in the threshold for legislative representation and the fading of the one-person parties, uh, you know, there is some talk that, that, that we might see a resurgence with the NPP and others, but I think it's, it's settled into a, a fairly strong uh, green block that is almost entirely DPP and blue block that is almost entirely KMT. But um, the, the, the dynamics within the parties uh, remain quite complicated. I think it is striking uh, that uh, Han Yu was able to do what he did in Kaohsiung. That suggests uh, something very much outside the the old paradigm of, of relatively centralized and relatively clear factions within the KMT. And the DPP, I think, is facing the question of whether there will be a generational transition. There is serious talk. I think it's overrated, but there's serious talk that Tsai may be in trouble for uh, renomination uh, to run in 2020. 
would be interesting. Great. And, and thinking of the generation gap, because certainly, you know, the old school sort of Ben Shengren, Wai Shengren, Mainlander, Taiwanese divide is, is, is not as apparent as it used to be. And, and with the Sunflower Movement, where we saw that there was, you know, the huge youth push, and, and, and that has in some ways continued, but, you know, dissipated to a certain extent from um, what we saw in 2014. But with the um, these progressive issues, and on the one hand, we have Taiwan having the largest gay pride parade in Asia. Last year, there was a great uh, LGBTQA plus exhibit at the Taipei Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, but as you noted, that there's also this strong con- conservative traditional uh, streak, and that it came out certainly in the marriage equality same-sex referendum, but also more generally just sensing that there is um, a generational divide. And, and how much in your, are you hearing that uh, politics are becoming uh, more generational, not just with respect to those key issues like uh, same-sex marriage, but uh, thinking about the economic future, uh, demographic shifts, uh, people are not having uh, children, stagnating wages, and, uh, and certainly some of those issues are going to uh, hit uh, younger people um, harder and longer than some of the uh, older generation. I think you're seeing that, and I think that's you know what drove the NPP certainly, and it's certainly what uh, was a big part of the DPP gains four years and two years ago. And it became clear that they don't really have a grip on that. Uh, I mean, party identification has been pretty volatile here, and much of that is uh, people who are younger people who aren't satisfied with either party. And both parties are facing uh, issues of generational transition at the top. I mean, some, you know, the current chair of the KMT is Wu Duanyi, who is the former vice president. And he's pretty superannuated. Uh, and Tsai is you know, somewhat younger, but if she's in trouble, uh, then we're looking toward another generation. And I think it's just not quite clear yet what that next generation leadership is going to look like and how it will, it will deal with uh, those kinds of challenges. I, w- I would characterize it as just a generally dissatisfied electorate, particularly among young people, and that just creates a very different landscape. Great. So I, I have tons of questions, but let's open it up to um, the general audience for questions, uh, and we'll get the uh, announcement on how that will occur, and then I might jump in later on. And we'll take our first question from Max Squawk with EY. Please go ahead. Hi. Good morning, everyone. appreciate your uh, thoughts and insights. Uh, I was just wondering why the turnout of this midterm election is so low, like only 55% around, if I'm not mistaken, like only slightly, maybe 6% higher than the U.S. midterm election. Because I thought all those LGBT movements would bring out a lot of young people, but then it just seems like they're not there. Uh, or were they simply giving up, you know, because of the, the lines are too long uh, and the effort's too, too much for them? Thank you. Well, I mean, the turnout wasn't that much lower than we've seen in, in past midterms. I mean, Taiwan's often in the you know, 60s. Um, there was some uh, discussion of voter discouragement because of the lines. If you look at it geographically, uh, voting was up significantly in Kaohsiung, and that's attributed to the Hanguo-Yu phenomenon and the, the, uh, the people that he drew to the polls, and I think you know, people who pushed back. Uh, it was turn, turnout was down somewhat in Taipei, and Taipei is where we got the strongest reports of, of long lines at the polling stations, and that's become quite controversial. One of the things that's feeding into uh, the closely contested mayor's race for Taipei, which may not be fully over yet, is that the KMT candidate, who lost by a tiny margin, 0.25% of the vote or so, uh, to uh, Koenja, has complained not only about the usual issues that would drive a recount, but also with uh, the release of preliminary election returns uh, by the Central Election Commission before the lines had cleared. I mean, the rule is if you're in line uh, by the time the polls closed, you get to vote, but that meant up to two hours extension in some 
uh, some polling places, including in Taipei. But I, I would characterize it as a, a slight drop in in turnout, but it's it's not falling off a cliff. And there's been a growing concern in Taiwan about relatively low participation rates. Participation rates. I mean, yes, someone higher than the U.S. typically is, but uh, not anything to uh, celebrate. And it's part of a much longer term uh, discussion about the uh, waning interest or waning confidence in, in democracy or a sense of the importance to vote. And I don't want to suggest that Taiwan's democracy is in great trouble. It's pretty much a global phenomenon, uh, but it is a source of concern here. And I, I think the, the, the process of voting is interesting because in so many ways I think of Taiwan as, as, as being so high-tech and, and, and certainly, but at the same time, the, the voting process, which Jacques, you mentioned, was clean voting, um, clean counting, and it's partly because it's so low-tech. And I was reading uh, Nathan Batto over at the Frozen Garlic blog, who's at Academia Sinica, which just put up a post of saying how the, quote, the current low-tech system is fantastic. It is transparent, accurate, fast, when not swamped by numerous referenda, trustworthy, highly resistant to vote rigging and completely unhackable. And then he had some more colorful language that I'll let you read um, on your own. Uh, but uh, I, I think, you know, having come through the U.S. midterm elections where uh, we have had a number of issues with respect to uh, old electronic machines that didn't work, and, uh, and then in some ways I find it, uh, you know, interesting that Taiwan is, is held on to such a low-tech method and, and that there really seem to be some, some merits. The, the lines are problematic. That, that's something which could be dealt with. Uh, but also this question about whether people need to physically return um, not just to Taiwan to vote, to, but to their you know, particular location about you know, the lack of absentee voting. And I understand the concerns that come when you have people voting remotely with respect to um, potential voter fraud. But obviously that too um, is difficult. The more mobile of a population you have, uh, the more difficult it is to return at a certain day and time to, um, to have your vote cast uh, where you are registered. And this is Jan, I'm sorry, just to uh, tack on a question to this. It's interesting because one would think that beforehand, especially if it is not electronic voting, uh, reading two or three referendum, at least in New York City, proved to be very difficult. The fact that they would have had 10 referendum on the ballot, with so many of them somewhat similar, so I would assume quite confusing, was that not brought up beforehand by people raising concerns that this might really slow things down? It was raised as a concern, and it appeared to have been validated. I mean, these these are referenda numbers 7 through 15, so the the 10 that we're on here. Um, There had only been uh, six before, and uh, they had been split over a couple of elections. So this this really was an issue. There was concern about uh, about it, uh, and it did prove to be somewhat well-founded. There were two concerns. One, obviously, is that the time required to go through all these referenda, and there certainly are anecdotal reports of people just throwing up their hands and saying, you know, I don't have time to make sense of this, and they're badly worded. Uh, And the Central Election Commission, uh, which is the body that oversees the clean and efficient voting that we've been talking about, also has a role in reviewing the referenda questions before they're put to the public. So uh, these are initiated in a variety of ways. These are typically initiated by petitions, which have fairly low thresholds, and the 2017 reforms was lowered to 1.5% of the voters in the previous presidential election. So it doesn't take much to get these things onto the ballot. The Central Election Commission is supposed to screen them for kind of adequacy and clarity and also uh, to screen them uh, in some ways for, for, for legality. So one of the issues with some of the referenda here was 
were they all consistent with the constitutional court's ruling concerning marriage equality. So there's a lot going on there, and the Central Election Commission, has, which usually gets a fair amount of deference and has a lot of respect here, uh, has been hammered for two things. One is this question of whether they adequately screen the text of some of these referenda, and the other is the issue which has come up, uh, mentioned before, in the, in the Taiwan, uh, Taipei uh, mayor's race, about whether releasing uh, some vote uh, information before the before everyone had voted was uh, the kind of thing that you know typically uh, gets criticized in any system where that happens. We've certainly seen it happen in the U.S. Great. Let's take the next question. And our next question will come from Douglas Spellman with the Wilson Center. Please go ahead. Yes. Uh, good morning. Uh, enjoyed your account, Jacques and uh, Margaret, very much. Very informative. Uh, I wondered uh, how much uh, America or relations with the U.S. Uh, and AIT played, if at all, in the elections. I saw that there was some kerfuffle over comments that Jim Moriarty had made in, a, in an interview, uh, but I wasn't able to figure out exactly how they had played or whether they would played very importantly. But the general question, did relations with the U.S. come up much? They weren't a big focus. I think the census relations with the U.S. are pretty good. Uh, I mean, they've, you know, the um, the story from the Mangjo administration, of course, was repairing a relationship that had uh, incurred some damage during the Chen Shui-bian years. And I think the view is that the Tsai administration has inherited and continued a quite good uh, relationship. Uh, you occasionally hear these oblique critiques from the relatively deep blue end that suggests that the Tsai administration's approach is unbalanced. That is, it is too much leaning toward to too much focusing on the U.S. to the exclusion of trying to maintain a uh, better relationship than it has with China. But that, that's fairly oblique uh, stuff. One of the things that's striking here is, uh, is particularly coming here from having uh, lived in the in the uh, immersion in discussion of the Trump administration in the U.S., uh, there's, mm. there is outwardly a very sanguine a view of U.S.-Taiwan relations under Trump. There's much less discussion of the kinds of things that one hears in U.S. circles right. that focus on China and Taiwan policy about how uh, you know, the, 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 this, the, the possibility of the bargaining chip, the possibility that U.S. commitments mm. will uh, turn out not to be so reliable. That is downplayed here. I think it is sometimes a little disingenuously downplayed uh, because mm. they, they don't really want to go there, but, but it was not a, a major factor in the election. It was really much more about the economy and about these domestic policy issues, and to the extent external relations figured into it, uh, cross-straits was more prominent. Right. right. Yeah, it reminds me of good old 1992, it's the economy stupid, where, you know, going back to Clinton here, that um, the, the local issues which people feel in a day-to-day way and in, in, in foreign relations, like many places, is not generally what's driving voters. But I do think um, as beyond just the United States, there is this bigger question about foreign relations and the loss of diplomatic allies. And, and certainly when you walk into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Taipei, you see it very visually because they have the flags uh, of, of the formal diplomatic allies and that, that number is, there's, there's more space between the flags now than there used to be. And, uh, and, and this uh, need for uh, the government and, and Tsai to try to articulate how much it matters to have those formal diplomatic relations as compared with strong but informal relations um, along the lines with the United States. And 
and certainly with the U.S., you have the traditional issues of how much uh, there is in terms of defense assistance and, uh, and, and, and that kind of thing. But I find it interesting, too, to see how the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is becoming um, sort of maybe some diversification. So, for example, you have the recent announcement by the U.S. Department of Justice with respect to uh, forming a task force uh, looking at China and uh, economic espionage and concerns about intellectual property theft. And when the big indictment, indictment came out now a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the parties that was indicted, or at least a couple of them, were related to Taiwan. But what was interesting was that uh, as part of the press release and, and during the press conference, the U.S. DOJ uh, complimented the Taiwanese authorities for their assistance in, in forming the case that was behind the indictment. So the, the story was partially that there was a, a Taiwanese, you know, there's Taiwanese uh, entities in the indictment, but that there's um, a really strong and I think a deep law enforcement cooperation. So there's a lot of ways that the U.S. and Taiwan are cooperating that might not be at the top of the headlines, uh, and uh, but that's going on behind the scenes. I would just add to that that um, the loss of diplomatic allies, this is the end of the diplomatic truce, the loss of five since Tsai came to power, does show up as part of the indictment of a government that is criticized mm. for mm. not being terribly effective. I wouldn't say it was a central issue. But what it does point to is, I think, one of the real unanswered questions after the election. I mean, you know, some, some questions were answered. The DPP took a drubbing. The DPP took a drubbing largely because of dissatisfaction with its governance rather than any newfound love for the KMT. But the question that is floating out there is, how is China going to react to this electoral outcome? Mm. Uh, and here there's, I think, still a fair amount of uncertainty about whether China now thinks it can relax a little bit because Taiwanese voters have sent a very strong signal uh, to, uh, to Taiwan right. that this government does not have a lock on power and, and may well be in trouble and that, that uh, uh, Beijing has much more reason to hope for a KMT victory in 2020 than it did a short while ago. Uh, but there's also a concern that, that Beijing will either ratchet up the pressure uh, in an attempt to, uh, to force further concessions from a weakened Tsai, and that may be a bad bet. I mean, they tried that to some degree with Chen Shui-bian, and if you back someone into a corner, they can uh, start pushing back fairly hard. Uh, the near-term uh, prospect seems to be uh, for China at least to say that it, it believes its assessment of the elections, which is that this was a rebuke of cross-strait uh, policies from Tsai. I'm not sure how much they even believe that. But the, one of the things we will see that has been in Beijing's arsenal is to try to do a bit of divide and conquer in the sense of rewarding uh, those uh, localities, those cities and counties that have KMT leadership uh, at the expense of at least relative deprivation for the jurisdictions that remain under DPP leadership. That was a hard strategy to do before these elections because there were only six of the 22 that were controlled by KMT uh, mayors or magistrates. Now it's up to 15 out of the 22, including some of the biggies, you know, including Kaohsiung, including Taichung, places like that. So the economic incentives uh, can matter, and getting some of these mayors or uh, magistrates to endorse the 92 consensus, which uh, which uh, Hangul Yu in, in Kaohsiung has expressed a willingness to do. Um, that's the sort of thing that, that, that is now a tool available to Beijing that just wasn't there before, and it's already creating some friction here because, of course, foreign affairs are the domain of the president, so should mayors be doing this uh, is something of an issue, and the KMT also isn't too keen on, 
on uh, mayors like uh, like Han, who's one they don't very much control from the party center, uh, going off on their own agenda. So there's a lot of, of that kind of toing and froing that we're likely to see. Uh, I, I share Maggie's concern about the dwindling numbers of flags. We were just there tonight at the foreign ministry for dinner, and it's looking sparser than it used to. And, and one does worry that Beijing may kind of overplay its hand here. The temptation to poach a few more allies in punishment for various things it doesn't like is surely there, and obviously Beijing has the capacity to do it. Uh, but if you reduce Taiwan to too few diplomatic partners, uh, it's not only potentially backing the government into a corner, it, it could pre- produce a new equilibrium strategy, which is to say we don't care much about diplomatic recognition. What we care about much more is, uh, is functional space. And if that becomes the argument from Taiwan, then there's perhaps a bit more ability to uh, solicit and get, gain support from the U.S., Japan, other uh, like-minded democracies, which may actually uh, undercut what Beijing is trying to do in terms of isolating Taiwan. Great. Let's uh, go to the next question in the queue, please. Yes, our next question is from William Armbrister. Yes, hi. Uh, I'm looking ahead to the 2020 uh, presidential election. Uh, what's your outlook for that? Uh, in in particular, uh, do you think Kowun Ra uh, will run as an independent, and how strong a candidate would he be? I was in Taiwan back in August, and some people suggested that he might be a very strong Trumpian type of, of candidate. Well, I think it's it's certainly a possibility. Uh, the um, the pattern in Taiwan's democratic era has been for presidents to be two-term presidents, even if they have been weak at various points during their presidency. Uh, but I think that's a less safe bet than it has been. When when the KMT suffered its midterm drubbing, it was in the second term. Uh, of Mang Jiu, so he was clearly going to have to leave, and the chance of uh, turnover power was relatively high. This is obviously in the first term, uh, and Kulinja does complicate things. Being mayor of Taipei has been a reliable stepping stone uh, toward the presidency in Taiwan. Uh, uh, Chen Shui-bian was mayor of Taiwan, of Taipei. Uh, Mang Jiu is also mayor of Taipei, and and Ke's, you know, a pretty formidable uh, character. Um, tough to run for the presidency, I think, still as an independent, but he clearly has tapped into this dissatisfaction with politics as usual from either party. And there certainly is lots of talk about his possibly running. Now, he's been in an interesting position. Uh, he has, in some ways, played both sides of the street. In addition to the general anti-traditional uh, politician uh, mode, uh, he was a supporter of Chen Shui-bian and of, of Tsai Ing-wen, and then he started saying things like, you know, the, the people on both sides of the straits are part of one family, and and uh, and Taiwan's essentially a mere object on the shelf in U.S.-China relations. He, he said things which uh, appeal to a whole bunch of different constituencies that are sometimes rather hard to reconcile with one another. And, and he's, you know, it's interesting because he's not just uh, falling, he's not just independent, but kind of, kind of a, an odd duck. And I find it interesting in Taiwan to ask people what they think about him because he kind of is perplexing. He was a medical doctor who became a politician. He just recently did a rap video, which is, is kind of fun to watch. And so he just doesn't slot into you know, any sort of traditional idea of, of, of a politician, it seems. And um, so I, I guess I'd be a little surprised if he was able to leap on to being uh, president. But at the same time, uh, you know, it's, it, there's so much in flux right now that uh, predictions are exceedingly hard to make. And 14 months is not that long, but in other ways, a lot can happen in, in 14 months. And, and certainly, I think with the tension and cross-strait relations, uh, you can see how not just Chinese influence, whether it be through uh, influence meddling or cyber operations, but just uh, overt 
policy from Beijing, um, you know, that's, that we don't know what's going uh, to unfold. But uh, I, I'm not a betting woman, but I, I would be surprised if, if Ko is able to parlay this into um, becoming president. It's one thing to uh, to express dissatisfaction with politics as usual and to have a, a throw the bums out because they aren't uh, dealing with our problems mentality for a lot of purposes. But the Taiwanese voters are, I think, pretty sensible and pretty careful about doing things that create existential problems. And I think putting a wild card candidate in to manage cross-strait relations would be a pretty remarkable undertaking, much more remarkable than what we've seen in terms of uh, expressing displeasure with the ruling party and its handling of primarily domestic affairs, whether it be the KMT or the DPP. So this is Jan again. My question was going to be for both of you, if not uh, you you've mentioned that the backbench on both sides isn't that strong, but do you have any thoughts as to where the next potential candidates might come from on either side? I've been asking that question, and uh, nobody really seems all that confident. I mean, the name that comes up most frequently on the DTP side is uh, Lai Qingde, the, the premier who offered to resign, which is an interesting uh, uh, move. Um, and you know, But he's in some ways, especially on cross-strait issues, darker green uh, than Tsai is. On the KMT side, I think you know, some people still talk about Eric Zhu, uh, who was the uh, obvious uh, candidate for for the last time out before he didn't uh, throw his hat in the ring initially in seeking the nomination from the KMT for 2016, uh, and then, of course, became the replacement candidate once Hong Xiuju had to step aside. But I think that whole uh, uh, sort of arc of, of, of being reluctant getting in and then losing badly has dimmed his chances. And then you hear a bunch of other names being kicked around, but, but none that really seem to get um, a whole lot of traction. I think there's more hope for some people who are still perhaps a little too young to be in that business. I mean, when you hear about the future of both parties, a lot of the talk tends to be about much younger people. For instance, uh, Jiang Wanan, who's now a member of the legislative yen, who's part of the you know, Jiang family that goes all the way back to Jiang Kai-shek, who's, you know, but he's a freshman legislator and is really too young, I think, to be uh, considered in the very near term for that kind of position. Yeah, and, and certainly when Lai Qingde, when he became premier, um, he talked about a bit of a kerfuffle. He made some comments that were, were clearly very deep green and, and then got reined in a little bit. But uh, I think if, if if the direction was to go deeper green than, than side, then it would get even um, more uh, complicated in some ways, and, or at least more interesting in cross-strait relations. And, and I'm not sure how much, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see what you think, Jacques, is you're saying how much the Taiwanese public has a stomach for that. Like, um, And there's been some interesting, you know, there's always polling in Taiwan and like anywhere in Europe, it's trying to figure out, you know, to what extent people are interested in independence or to what extent would they, uh, you know, the, the referendum, of course, on the Chinese Taipei versus Taiwan and questions how much people were sort of scared away from that with concerns that they would, um, Taiwan then would have no access to the Olympics if there was a, a name change. But um, then the polling that also tries to figure out, well, you know, if there was an invasion, would you fight? And then even the questions, well, do you think your neighbor would fight? And, and the reality is that Taiwan hasn't had to actually fight. They've been in this state of somewhat military preparedness, but there hasn't been actual conflict. And so I've found living there interesting, this sort of deep questions about on a day-to-day basis, it's a lovely place to live, it's very you know, peaceful, law and order, but there's this general sense of, well, what, what would people do if, if things really got bad? And, 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 and that um, 
is is lurking pretty deep in the background. It doesn't. You still have to take your kids to school. Still have to like go to work. It's not something that I felt like was you know, weighing on people all the time. But that question is out there, and um, and I wonder how much there is a stomach to go deeper green if that might bring those questions more to the fore. I think what you've seen is repeatedly Taiwanese leaders who stray too far from uh, maintaining the status quo get into some trouble. So uh, Chen Shui-bian got into some trouble by pushing the envelope in a way that uh, that angered Beijing and that started eroding American support uh, for being you know, too pro-independence, for lack of a better phrase. And, and Meng Jiu, too, took uh, the heat from the other uh, direction when he started talking about a cross-strait peace initiative, a peace agreement, and things like that, and ultimately had to adopt uh, the, his three-no's position, which said no unification during his presidency and not even uh, discussion on sovereignty questions. Uh, so I think uh, for some time now, leaders have understood uh, that uh, there are bad consequences uh, if one strays too far from uh, the middle position on that. And I think it's widely and rightly believed that Tsai Ing-wen's success in 2016 was contingent on her being able to assure people that she was not going to upset the apple cart in cross-strait policy and that she would accept the changes that were made uh, under Ma. And uh, Mind Jiu got in trouble near the end of his term, the midterms uh, that, that uh, turned out so badly for the KMT, in part because of the sense that the cross-strait services trade agreement might be moving too far, too fast toward the mainland. So there is this, this pull toward uh, the middle that I think is, is kind of hard uh, to shake, and absent a sense uh, that the kind of existential dread that Maggie points to is, is, is nigh, um, there's not much stomach for going there. And the polling has been remarkably stable for quite some time, that even as uh, Taiwanese identity, people identifying themselves as Taiwanese, has gone up and up and up. Uh, support for formal independence has plummeted and remained low just because of a sense that that's just plain not feasible. Uh, it, would, it would be uh, something of a suicide mission. Great. Uh, let's go to the next question in the queue, please. We'll go next to Thomas Gold with the University of California, Berkeley. Please go ahead. Uh, hi, everybody. Great, great job, of course. I had some questions on uh, sort of election culture. I don't know if uh, either of you, I don't, I don't think, was there during the campaign. And uh, I wondered if, if you heard if there's been any sort of um, change in campaign culture. Is there rally fatigue? That sort of was always a big part of the campaigns in Taiwan. Uh, and if you had a sense, uh, I, I read somewhere about you could look at the crowds at, at different campaigns, and there was a great distinction about age, class, gender, and so on, if you, if you knew anything about that. And also, in the past, there's been a mobilization of the diaspora, uh, chartering planes to go back from the U.S. and Australia, and also, of course, from China, uh, to vote in the, to vote in the uh, elections, certainly the presidential elections in the LY. Did you hear anything about or, or see groups uh, from, 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 those, uh, fr uh, from those constituencies? And any, any evidence of PRC threats against Taishang, uh, that, you know, you know who to vote for and you know what's, what's in the best interest of your business over here. Uh, yeah, I don't think either one of us was here for that, so we didn't have the first-hand stuff. It's, it's not something that people are, are talking about as having been a big phenomenon, uh, you know, as, as they chew over uh, the results. Um, uh, as you say, Tom, the, the attempt to get people back here as well as the attempt to lean uh, fairly heavily on Taiwanese voters from the mainland side has been more associated with the, the presidential and, and legislative 
elections. Um, I think it's been a little more diffuse and a little more subtle. Uh, as to uh, rally fatigue, uh, well, that's something they were, I think, hoping to cope with by reducing the number of elections. I and mean, Tom, you and I remember the days when it seems like there was an election every five minutes, uh, and now we've just got these these uh, every two years or you know four year two four year cycles that alternate uh, for the uh, presidential legislative on one side and the uh, mayor and magistracy ones we just went through. Um, you know, I think we we don't see the kind of enthusiasm we've seen for, for some past elections, uh, partly as reflected in the flattening uh, turnout. Uh, the the, the counterexample of that is, again, the Hangul Yu phenomenon. He apparently drew quite large crowds to, uh, to Stadia for his rallies. And, and I was there before the, the real election season kicked in, but certainly the, the advertisements and, and everything were starting to kick up. And, and, and there's always there's, – you don't need an election to have a rally, right, in Taiwan. And I went to rallies for in favor of jury systems, which as a law professor I thought was fantastic, but, you know, it's not your, your usual thing that gets people out in the streets. But um, I, I also, you know, totally anecdotal, but I found that the, the people at the rally tended to be uh, a little bit older, and certainly um, my my younger friends, 30s or younger, uh, I feel like they're on, online a lot. Um, first of all, Facebook has huge penetration. A lot of my friends are posting uh, political um, thoughts on Facebook. Uh, the actual uh, social messaging system Line, which uh, I didn't use until I went to Taiwan, and I thought that I need to Pai Dui or something, and I realized it's like WeChat or WhatsApp or any of these other messengers, and, and that's used a lot. Uh, so it's it's partially I, I don't know how much that there's a shift. Too, to less going out in the streets and, and more having those conversations happen uh, on digital platforms. And, and certainly it's, uh, it's very interesting to see how the Tsai administration has, uh, maybe not successfully, but at least making efforts to um, become more digital itself. And you look at Audrey Tang, the, the, the minister without portfolio, who was a, a hacker during the Sunflower movement and, and now is within the executive uh, UN and um, really interesting individual. And and, and so you have uh, that, that layering on of a lot of more high-tech ways of, of mimicking or at least having some of the similar mobilizing and socialization functions that the old-school street rallies serve. I was here earlier in the, in the, in size, uh, the first half of size term, and there was a fair amount of rallying activity over the uh, marriage equality legislation uh, that was being introduced and was being uh, fought against by a variety of religious groups and then, and then some uh, religious and non-religious groups coming out in favor of it. And that was a time of some fairly uh, fairly yeasty uh, types of rallies and protests that would be familiar to Tom from uh, times gone by outside uh, outside the legislature uh, when there was what ultimately proved to be an ill-fated uh, effort to to, um, to legislate on, on uh, marriage equality. Okay, let's go to the next question, please. And our final question is from Alex Renner with the Asia Group. Please go ahead. Hi. So I guess this has got me wondering uh, what the potential is for this to lead to a DPP self-correction. And if it does, kind of what does that potential policy and legislative agenda look like moving forward? Are we going to see a greater focus on economic opportunity or a swing to improving cross-strait relations? I mean, in general, like what do you think those key pillars of the DPP policy agenda are going to look like? Well, the you know, the DPP is clearly shaken by this. I think size line uh, was something like democracy has taught us a lesson. Um, but in asking uh, people, including DPP uh, sort of policy people around here, sort of what do you do next? I think there's a, a little bit of, uh, of at least this soon after the election, 
um, uh, bewilderment about where to go. And I, I sort of share that sense of, of difficulty because it is hard to know where to go. Uh, it's not clear that Beijing is going to be terribly accommodating uh, for further opening on cross straits, at least absent fully accepting the 92 consensus or the one-China principle, and that obviously creates huge problems uh, for Tsai with uh, the DPP base. Many of the progressive social policies that Tsai tried to tried to pursue, um, you can't really go back there right now. It's not clear how well some of them would have worked anyway, given the, the lineup of, of opposition and support for them, but certainly now that they've been handled in a way that, that has uh, produced a lot of criticism of the handling. It's going to be a little hard to find new traction there. Uh, there's a sense that uh, it really is the economy stupid and that, that there should be a focus on that, and I think there probably is a pretty widely uh, shared view that the DPP needs to focus on and deliver on uh, economic promises, uh, but those are not entirely within a government's uh, ability uh, to achieve. Uh, so I think they've got a fairly tough road to hoe, and, and uh, I think there's also going to be the additional uncertainty that's introduced by if there is a fight for leadership to try to displace size, and obviously there's going to be a need to uh, differentiate oneself within the party in terms of a policy platform. But I don't think there's an obvious way out, um, and I think we're going to be you know, hearing about that for, uh, for, for some time, and again, only 14 months, so it's not much time to, to, uh, to deliver demonstrable progress. So we have the, the short time horizon of, of these 14 months, but then looking longer term, one issue which I feel comes up all the time is, of course, demographics and that people in Taiwan are just, they're not having kids. It's one of the lowest birth rates in the world. And, and, and Tsai will be the first to say that, you know, she sees this as, as if not the challenge, a key challenge and that it's a democracy. You can't force people to have children. You can't force them not to have children. And I was struck being there, especially with, with young kids, that in, you know, in some ways that uh, Taiwan is a wonderful place to have children. There's, there's it's, you know, breastfeeding rooms and all the train stations and, and lots of encouraging to have great playgrounds. But at the same time, the birth rate is very low, in part because of economic reasons, stagnating wages. Um, I do think there's still some traditional views of, uh, of women that make it difficult um, for women to be both uh, career-oriented uh, and have children. And, and that's not unique to Taiwan, but there's, there's certain factors there. So I, I think, too, you know, it's my... I'm interested in, and you know, firstly, this immediate sort of how do you sell voters for 2020, and then there's these really deep, difficult questions about how does Taiwan deal with not the next 14 months, but the next 14 years and, and longer, and and there's really no easy answers uh, for that, and and there's some some big challenges regardless if it's DPP or KMT. Yeah, I think the real risk that the politics may remain about short term getting voters back and. One of the lessons that I think is uh, perhaps too easy to take away uh, from this outcome is that, as in many democracies where you've got frustrated voters, uh, the biggest advantage the incumbent party has is that they're running against the out-of-power party, which doesn't seem to have a great alternative to offer. Well, thank you to Jacques for staying up late and for the National Committee for convening this call. I, I, I really appreciated you know, being able to... Um, think through some of these issues that have all been swirling in our heads this past week, and, and, and hopefully we'll have a chance to have more conversations as, as 2020 and beyond approaches. And let me, on behalf of the National Committee, thank, first of all, Jacques, as Maggie said, for staying up late to do this. 
Uh, Maggie, thank you so much. I neglected to mention that Maggie, in addition to all of the wonderful things she does at Seton Hall and in her law career, is also a member of our Public Intellectuals Program, and she participates in other committee projects, one of which is going to start on Sunday, and she's leaving tomorrow for China for that. So we appreciate you putting your packing on hold to so ably not just moderate but also participate in the discussion. We appreciate that. And then thank you to all of you who called in and for your very thoughtful questions. We look forward to having you on future National Committee call-ins.